So for so for two full days, I was walking around the little residential area where we live mm. with a bag of the treats that the cats like more than anything else, shaking it, calling out for the ginger one who's called Harley, hoping that he wasn't in fact or had moved away, shall we say, politely. <laughs> found a, had found a better family. And a better family with more food. But you do get that, because my brother and sister-in-law have got... Well, they now have one cat, they used to have two, and they found that one of the, one of the cats, possibly the one that's now dead, went away for like four or five days, and they couldn't work out where it was. So More than four or five days now, isn't it, though? James, <laughs> it's now more than four or five days. James sort of went round Ilkley, where they live, trying to find it, and it, it turned up in somebody else's house and somebody else had just started feeding it and was you treating it as their own cat? Well, I had a, a very, very helpful conversation with the lady at number two mm. uh, who said... Oh, yeah, I know her. Yeah. Nice. Uh, who said, do you know what? I've got a ginger cat. He goes away for three or four days at a time. I have no idea who's feeding him, but he comes back and he's very happy. <laughs> when my um, when my brother moved into the house, which he's lived in for about 10 years now... Um, Is this your famous brother? No, no, the, the least famous. Oh, my, no, one of the non-famous... You don't want to be one of the non-famous brothers, no. do you? Uh, they, they, they bought this very nice little um, a cottage in, in, in a village and were very happy. And they realised that they'd sort of inherited a cat... And basically, right. the guy that they bought the Bequeathed. house from had a cat, a very, very rotund cat, mm. and just decided, I'm not taking it with me, and had left it there when he moved out. Really? And this cat was, like, coming to the back door and expecting to be let in and fed, and they've, basi- they, they've basically inherited a cat from the, from the person they bought the so house from. that's probably easier for the cat, isn't it? The cats don't really care about who the people are. I don't think many of my neighbours, because we only lived there for about a year and a half, I don't think many of my neighbours know who lives in that house. We don't... We don't spend a lot of time like, having putting bunting out and having yeah, street parties. You're not, fri- you're not. You're not a friendly and, and sociable I'm, couple. And I are don't you? like human beings. But the um, but they all know me now. They know me as the weirdo who goes around shaking cat treats, shouting Harley. I'm the just of the idiot dog. I'm the I'm the the noisy one in the park who's continually whistling and shouting here and trying to get his attention. He's, he's continually running off to say hello to other dogs. So I think there's loads of people who see me in the park of a morning thinking, oh God, he's here again. It's really it's really upsetting well, to be like a pariah. I, 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 I was conversing with your neighbours because I, I had to feed Hughes cats on uh, on one of the days whilst they were away. I, I thought the best man responsibilities would finish Apparently not. with the speech, but no. But it's it, an ongoing thing. Oh, hang on a minute. Feeding so cats whilst they're away. The, the, best, the, the best man thing lives independently from being just a friend. <laughs> Before being a best man, I didn't know him. And after being a best man, I'd rather not know him again. But it was for a some reason, was... he resents the fact that there is an ongoing friendship with with, with oh, a person you know, with whom he must show commitment. Steve's very much, he's very much a cat person, not a dog person, isn't he? He's not loyal until the end. He very much he comes and goes as he pleases, Steve Wyatt. That's famously. He's like, Hugh, he's, Hugh doesn't go and feed my children whilst I go on holiday. No. Thankfully, that's because you take the children with you. Were you not to take the children with you, it would be more than feeding. I would be also phoning social services. You'd be coming home and saying, well, Rory disappeared for two days. We don't know where he went. Or Something who about feeding. the gingers. They just go yeah, and never just... come back. Uh, welcome to Set Piece Many. This is the podcast where four friends talk football over food. Once again, we are sans chinch this week as we continue our series of multi-part summer specials. So, joining me, Hugh Ferris, tea, one sugar. Ah, Rory Smith, coffee, one sugar. Today. Don't tell Kate. Yeah. Um, and Steve Wyeth, 
Coffee used to have a sugar, but doesn't anymore because he weaned himself off it because of waistline issues. And now he thinks he's better than us. Yeah, because no, I, comp- I just compensate by eating huge quantities of Haribo instead. That, that, that makes absolutely no sense. We have still uh, remaining, as we graze our way through the morning, uh, a lovely selection. I say selection. Two or three left of our Millionaire Mini Bites and our Salted Caramel Popcorn Mini Bites, also provided uh, by Rory Smith, for whom we say... Gratitude. It's all right, thanks. It's fine. Don't worry. And if you were listening last week, uh, you will know that Steve was supposed to bring the food. He did offer. And because we both didn't, Rory and I, on the WhatsApp group that doesn't have Chinch in it, uh, didn't immediately say, oh, yes, Steve, that'd be amazing, Steve. We love you, Steve. Thanks, Steve. You can be our friend forever, but not our best man, because those two (laughs) things lie completely separate. Um, He decided that uh, he would not bring that food. So we're a little undernourished. A little bit. But um, with our caffeine and our sugar we should be able to get through the next half an hour or so uh, during which we will conclude our conversation about transfers and actually to be honest chinch's contribution to the subject has already been committed to tape it involved big ron's wife and a plate of kit kats so we'll manage without him on last week's pod we talked about the coverage and reporting of a transfer story so on part two we'll replace our eyeballs with pound signs as we consider the figures involved in the current transfer market why are clubs paying so much money Money. Who sets the standard? Can they afford it? And how on earth did Mina Raiola earn 40 million quid for Paul Pogba's move to Manchester United? Before that, though, we promised last week we'd talk about how transfers actually come about. But owing to the to the fact that we are incredibly um, self-obsessed and navel-gazing, we ended up talking about the media far too much. Uh, so if only there was a presenter of the podcast who, who could keep us on track and stop us going off on these massive tangents. I, that's that's authority figure, yeah. Yeah. I like a chairperson, perhaps. Everybody listening was absolutely fascinated and did not want the flow to end. So I think in terms of it wouldn't necessarily have made a full podcast anyway to talk about how transfers come about, but there is, I think, a bit of a misunderstanding in that we still distrust, this is the segue, Pay attention to the segue. We still talk about transfers as though they were happening in, in 1920s Britain, where sort of Sir Herbert Humphrey, Humphrey Smythe would call his counterpart at Trollchester and say, hey, uh, we would like to sign your win half for £5,000. And that's my impression of a posture. <laughs> and the, based on many of my family members. Uh, and... Uh, and then he'd go, oh, of course, yeah, I'll give you permission to, to speak to him. And, or, and it, it doesn't, it's not that formal. So, so, just to, so you can do Gruff Northerner. Yeah. You can do Bayern Munich employee. Yeah. And you can do posh owner John, of John, a... John uh, Dyche is, is from, from, the, no, from the countryside. No, but I can, I can, I can I know, also but, do Gruff Northerner. All oh, right, OK. But I can also, just, just so we're clear, my, my greatest one is Camp Yorkshireman. Uh, which I'll unwield. Is that your natural one? Uh, to an extent. <laughs> it's, the one, it's certainly the one that comes easiest. Uh, but it centres largely on malt loaf. Anyway. Uh, so there's the, two gentlemen in wing-backed armchairs yeah. at the club so we tell, being very, very polite this saying, is how we, of course you can have him. This is how we think of transfers happening. And, it, and to an extent, that's encouraged by the FA and by the rules about tapping up and what have you. But in reality, what happens is that no club ever met... I think Peter Coates said this, the chairman of Stoke, relatively recently, in the Sunday Times, in fact. No club ever goes for a player that might not sign for them. You'd never make a bid for a player who would turn around and say, actually, you must be joking. <laughs> I'm not going to Stoke. I want to sign for Stoke. I'm far better than that. So there are conversations that go on with between clubs and agents constantly, all of the time, to establish... Uh, would the player be interested? How much money would the player expect? What sort of length of deal? We said last week that you know there's 500 players that could sign for a bid club 
it's not it's it, just as it's not hard to watch them it's not hard to keep in touch with their demands or their kind of their movements um, and the agents would encourage those and, conversations uh, yeah. anyway and the agents would encourage them anyway so you kind of know when a player is interested and you might also have spoken to their club sort of behind the scenes you might have called chairman to chairman chief exec to chief exec technical director to direct, technical director friend to friend often because none of that is tapping up because none of it's tapping up you might you, you might not you, and to be honest you may well have exchanged texts with the manager might have exchanged texts with the player you hear cases of, of players at one club going texting a player at another club saying would you come and you know what would you would, would you fancy it would you if they want to cut, cut out the middleman entirely there's lots of communication behind the scenes so by the t- by the time a bid goes in a lot of that groundwork's been done and when you see it written that you know they such and such have agreed to deal with such and such it's because they've spoken to the agent and said look how much would he expect and the agent said this and the club has said well what about this and then they've negotiated so that that kind of haggling process has already happened behind the scenes and i think that's all that's all completely fine i don't think that's a problem at all and isn't it why transfers are concluded in a strangely quick way when you've eventually got to the point that you know that the transfer is happening. Normally you would imagine that, right, okay, we're going to sit down now and it takes as long to negotiate this contract as it would do an existing player and sometimes that takes months. Mm. So why is this happening? Hang on a minute, you've already agreed personal terms. Surely that's one of the most important things. The the conversation about the fee, haggle, 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 okay, bit of standoff, bit of playing games, that's fine. But how on earth have you managed to come to this conclusion on a five-year contract worth hundreds of thousands of pounds a week in what essentially, since we knew that the the transfer is happening is about 36 hours. Yeah, and it's because all of that's been done. And then... There are also those private hospitals are strangely um, very very, <laughs> very prepared available. for the arrival of a footballer's <laughs> yeah. medical, aren't they? Oh my they? God, this guy's here and he wants us to check his heart rate. It's, it's like they're just like on emergency standby, just in case. Well, no wonder the NHS is suffering. Everyone's waiting for... Waiting for Alvaro Morata. <laughs> for Glenn Whelan to do his medical. The, um, but the other thing is, and this should also be pointed out, that the nature of selling a player is more complicated than it would appear because what you often get is um, an agent will be given a mandate by a club agents don't just act for players they act for clubs as well which I find astonishing they'll be given a mandate by sometimes for both as well and sometimes for both in the same in the same deal and this is where it gets very murky they'll be given a mandate by a club to to sell a player on their behalf and it happened with Valencia uh, to when did Patrick Altesser sign for Barcelona last summer yes yeah so George Mendes is not Paco Altacer's agent, but George Mendes had the mandate to sell Paco Altacer for Valencia, and that's because so he do, then goes round and shops Altacer because of his relationship with Valencia. Because of his relationship with Valencia and the perception that Mendes can get you a better price. So you and then you have agents who try to sort of interpose themselves in deals to try and um, make basically take a cut of a deal that's nothing to do with them. They will they will end up in a deal that. In, does not involve a club they worked with or a player that they represent, but they will somehow become involved in that deal to try and smooth it over the line. Now, what those elements of a transfer, why the, any of them are necessary, I have absolutely no idea, because surely a chief executive of a club should be capable of striking a deal with an agent and a player over and a club over a fee and wages. That That's not that hard. Yeah, why, why do we need yet another intermediary to, uh, to try and make that happen? And sometimes you have intermediaries working in a kind of an overall capacity you mentioned about George Mendes and um, Valencia. When Taxon Shinawatra took over at Manchester City, the top table was a representative of the club, Sven Juren Eriksson and Jerome Anderson, the agent. Mm. Essentially, every deal that would be done would be done by Jerome Anderson, i.e. for his players, or he would be acting on behalf of the club. And Blackburn got into 
trouble recently for a very, very similar deal where under the Venkis, Jerome Anderson was basically shopping all his players in, working on behalf of the club or bringing his players into a club who he already worked for. Um, Keir Jarabshian was accused of doing that as well with Manchester City when, when he was representing Mark Hughes as well as a lot of the Manchester City players. So th- there are sometimes these agents and Monaco, George Mendes as well. Well, the Mendes, ne- the, the Mendes network is Monaco, Valencia, uh, Wolves increasingly, Benfica currently more than Porto, uh, teams like Rio Ave in Portugal as well, Deportivo La Coruña for a long time, Mendes goes into clubs, uh, and Doyen, Nelio Lucas, who's another Portuguese agent, runs the Doyen Fund, they do the same, they go into clubs, they often do them finance deals on loans, they, they take the part of a bank, uh, and then they become involved in their transfer dealings. The, the theory for the clubs is that it gets you access to, to a better quality of player than you'd have otherwise. And in, in Wolves' case, that's definitely true. No, not a chance. Wolves are signing Helder Cross from Ruben Neves unless they've got a relationship with George Mendes. Uh, I am convinced that it is, it is a genuinely terrible thing for football generally. And I think if you, even with Mendes, who is, by all accounts, a really good agent to his players, but even with Mendes, I think you'd struggle to say that his influence on any club where he's had any considerable kind of power that his influence has been consistently positive. So th- we're talking about, because we, we don't want to get too much involved in the in the, in the money aspect, because we'll, we'll do that in a second, but we're, we're talking about how a transfer comes about. And essentially we're saying that the waters are becoming more and more yes. muddied. It is not two guys in back to armchairs at the club uh, talking about a, a simple transaction where executive talks to executive, haggles out a deal. It all happens before anything is even, let alone the speculation in the papers, anything is... Um, made public. All of these things happen. I suppose timing is an issue if, if we're talking about um, transfer deadline day, for example. You need to have all these things ironed out beforehand. But the, the, the deal of a transfer is much, much more complicated than any of us would have ever understood, certainly from, what, 10 years ago? Even. Yeah, and I think the, the peril of it is that the two guys in the wind-back time chairs discussing Engelbert Humperdinck signing for Colchester... The, the buying club are buying that player because they need him and the selling club are selling that player because the amount of money they're being offered is worth more to them than the player. So in, the, in whether it's the right decision or the wrong decision to sign that player, that player could be a disaster. He could, yeah. you know, all, all, all those kind of random things can occur. But people are acting in the best, in, the best interests of the club as they perceive them. Increasingly, and especially with the role of those agents, and I'm going to name them, Jarabshi and Mendes Zahavi, they're the three, and Fadi Ramadani, Fadi Ramadani, who's Zahavi's sort of partner, they are acting not in the best interest of the clubs. The clubs are being hijacked, for want of a better word, there is a better word for it, to act in the interest of the agents, and that is the danger. And the agents' players, yeah. yeah. But what does it tell you about the naivety and perhaps the insecurity of, of the football club owners that they allow themselves to get into that position in the first place? And the ineptitude of the... And, and, and I need to calm myself down. The ineptitude of the executives. So you're, you buy a football club, you're rich enough to buy a football club, and you get sold by Jerome Anderson, the idea that y- you have to employ him to sign players. For God's sake, have some self-respect. And what, sometimes we... We accuse um, businessmen of trying to run a football club like they run their other businesses. But 
the flip side of that is true as well. You wouldn't run your other businesses like like this. You wouldn't allow a recruitment agent to come in and deal with your staffing policy in any one of your other businesses. So why do you allow a football agent to come into your football club and run the recruitment side of things there? Although, interestingly, the BBC apparently are outsourcing a lot of their HR. <laughs> <laughs> but that, that goes back to the, to the guys in the wing-back armchairs. It's not executive to executive. It's the relationships that build up between uh, an agent who is able to woo mm. a chief executive, Ooh. whether it is a, an experienced one, manipulate, yeah. <laughs> whether it's an experienced one or a new one with a lot of money to spend, they can see that their money is going to be spent better or they yeah. feel that, certainly after having a conversation with this agent. And so there is, there is a lot of, um, you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours, but I'm actually giving you a full-on massage yeah. uh, one way and the other one is just getting a little bit of a tickle. Mm. Everybody yeah. happy with that outrageous metaphor? Yeah, it's slightly, conf- slightly confused by the metaphor. But yeah. so that's, the kind of, that's gentlemen in wingback armchairs <laughs> giving each wearing other a tweed suits <laughs> giving each other a back tickle. The, yes. Weird. <laughs> but that's, so that's kind of the background to how transfers. I just wanted to make sure that we kind of we actually answered that yeah. question. So let's stay with the agents then as we continue our conversation about transfers, but bring it over to the money. Mina Raiola, who is the agent of Paul Pogba, amongst many others, including Zlatan Ibrahimovic, Hen- Henrik Mkhitaryan. Anybody getting any sort of link here? It's funny, it's funny how many funny how strange that must have been. Um, apparently, he had forty-one million pounds from all three parties in the Paul Pogba deal. So Manchester United, from Paul Pogba himself, and from Juventus as well. Um, FIFA have um, decided to open. A case on it and to look into it, and but I think have absolved Manchester United yeah, already from any at, wrongdoing. Yeah. Um, but how does how does an agent how how do two clubs? So you can understand a, a player doing it, but how can two clubs negotiate a fee that they know will be slashed in terms of what they're going to be getting because they're paying an agent forty a total of forty million pounds? And is this now? the standard that has been set. So anytime anybody does any sort of deal, which is approaching the 80, 90 million pound mark, a, a new transfer record, is the agent going to say, well, Mina Raiola got 40 million quid. So that is my bargaining chip. That is what I'm going to say. From now on, every deal that, that has this amount of money attached to it, I'm going to ask for what is essentially almost half of the money exchanging hat. Well, why are agents even being paid by clubs? Surely agents represent players. So players <laughs> should be you know, they, a, a pl- the cut of the player's salary goes to the agent for negotiating the deal on their behalf. Which is right. That's, that's, that's how it should be. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I do don't it. understand how we've got to a situation where that isn't the case. To make sure that they get the player, I'm assuming. If Manchester United and, say, Chelsea both wanted Paul Pogba, I don't think that was the case, obviously, last summer. But if there's a relationship that Manchester United have with Mina Raiola to act on their behalf, i.e., and you said about George Mendes was basically sanctioned, he mm. go out, yeah. sell my player, or alternatively, buy my players... Mm. That, that the relationship between Manchester United and Mina Raiola would have been a stronger one because of, he, of all those other players that they had bought mm. that he represented. And so they are able to have a, a clear path to Paul Bogba. And obviously that is to Mina Raiola and to Manchester United worth some money. But uh, it's, it's but Steve's right. There's, there's no, there is, logically, there's no real reason. I'd, 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 if there is someone out there who can tell me what benefit it is to the club to have an agent sell their player, given that the, the clubs are staffed with lawyers and executives. Yeah. But they're nervous. Exactly. They're nervous about an open market. They're nervous that they won't get their player. For, for PR reasons, but these going after Paul Pogba and failing to get him publicly would be incredibly damaging in a PR sense. Of course it would be. But these are supposedly intelligent, successful business people. Yeah. Like you know, Rory's just mentioned, you know, they're, they're lawyers. 
their solicitors. Um, they've made huge sums of money in other industry. Yet suddenly they're incapable of negotiating the transfer of a footballer from one club to another without an intermediary who's not got their best interests at heart. Yeah, it seems it's astonishing to me. It is astonishing. astonishing. Not that Can it you understand, but if they, want, if they need insurance to make sure that this deal happens, surely they will pay. If they're already paying 80 million or thinking about paying this amount of money, surely they will think about paying an extra bit of money to make sure that it happens. But in football, too often we talk about massive... You know when you, when you buy a house... This is now going to become a really bourgeois conversation as I try and distract. <laughs> well, buying a house is another another um, transaction which is much more complicated than it needs to be. Yeah, it is. It should also be state regulated. But anyway, <laughs> the the when you bu- I remember when we were looking in London, we, we eventually couldn't afford to buy in London, so we didn't buy in London. But you'd, you'd, we'd, we set a budget and said, right, we want to look at flats in this in this kind of area. And then the estate agents would be like, right, here's what we've got. And they'd give you all the crap ones because that's what they do to the new customers. They'd try and give you the crap ones. <laughs> and then you'd say no to all of them. Then they'd give you, show you a couple of decent ones and they wouldn't be quite right or whatever. And then you'd get these emails saying, oh, um, we've just got this one as well. It's um, it's a little bit over your asking price. <laughs> a little bit over your budget. And it'd be 50 grand. And you'd be like, I remember Kate reading them and saying, what do you mean? 50, 50 grand isn't a bit over asking price. It's twice the national average wage. <laughs> That's not a bit over anything. We're not bringing in two other people to yeah. help us buy this house. <laughs> but it's the same, and there's this thing in, in 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 real estate, as Americans call it, where the we have this tendency, or estate agents have this tendency to talk about vast sums of money as though they are. It's you know, it's, it's only a fiver. Yeah, trifling. It's it's only fifty grand. It's not a problem. And it's the same in football that. We, we, because the, huge, the sums of money that are going around are so massive, we, we tend to treat like a million quid as though it's not very much. But to businessmen, whatever, or business women, business people, whatever the, the initial sum, a million quid is a million quid. It's a lot of money. A dog is eating my headphone. Well, I think that Hector has noticed that the only food on the table that is consumable are his treats, so he's going for them. He's become very impolite. Uh, no, that's fine. That's Lick, licking the microphone is you absolutely want, Have fine. I shown you his latest trick? Come on, come on. This, this will work beautifully on a non-visual medium. He's anyway. sitting very patiently. Could you just commentate, Steve? And in, please? A- attentively as well. Back. One finger eyes, in the air. Eyes on Rory. Eyes on his owner. Back. Back. He's taken like half a step back. This is not back. the most. Uh, this is not the most <laughs> compelling of instructions being followed. This is not the authoritative voice that back. can uh, meander our way through a podcast. Yes, good boy. So basically, Hector's new trick is reversing a little. (laughs) I taught taught Hector to reverse. I don't know why. Uh, Excellent. I've never seen him more proud, which is slightly upsetting. Um, (laughs) We are talking almost absent-mindedly about fees of 50, 60, 70 million pounds for non-world-beating players, particularly this summer. And you just wonder, don't you... Where do these figures come from? Why is there an acceptance now that that's okay? Whose fault is it? And are they going to just continue to go up? And the new the new standard it used to be twenty million pounds for a fairly good player. The new standard fairly good player average will be fifty million pounds. Yeah, it will be. I I wrote about this a couple of weeks ago. uh, I read it. It was good. I had the same question, which was basically like, how on earth do you come up with these figures? And it's it's kind of half and half. I think there's a lot of clubs that still stick a finger in the air, and they kind of they have people who kind of understand the flow of the market as much as anything else, and sort of decide well if he's worth that and he's worth that, then we can probably ask for that. 
Um, That's the old Fernando Torres, Andy Carroll argument that Liverpool made. Yeah. Fernando Torres is worth 15 million more million pounds, 15 million more pounds than Andy Carroll. So we're going to pay 35 million yeah, for Andy Carroll. Exactly. I mean, that's that's bonkers. In, insane. But there's a lot of clubs who will, who, and, and it works to their benefit. Just you know, they, they mean it basically means they're overcharging and, and what have you. Although it also means that when clubs do it to them, they have to overpay. But you do increasingly have clubs who are modelling using numbers and facts and such. Uh, who are modelling kind of the economic, the intrinsic value of a player. So they they can work out, lots of Premier League teams doing it, they can work out that Kyle Walker's actual value is £12 million, for example. That that's how much they should have to pay from in a logical, rational market. That's how much he would be worth. But they are aware, those clubs, despite all the time and money they invest in these models, they are aware, they're aware that the football transfer market is not logical or rational. So there is an intrinsic value to the player, an economic value, but there is also an intuitive value to a player. And the best example, I guess, is... Well, it's anything, really, that for food, say, the ingredients of a sandwich are the same wherever wherever you go but depending on where you buy it and who you who you're buying it from and how much you need it so that like a sandwich shop in a desert that's going to charge a fortune as you'll have discovered in Mallorca. Well, somebody told me just the other day that they um, went to a uh, a hotel on their honeymoon they went to a hotel in the Bahamas but it was at the end of their honeymoon they had run out of money because they had spent all the money on getting the hotel in the Bahamas which was it was a very very hot week it was quite a trek to the nearest town. So to the only food that was essentially available to them was the food in the hotel. But the cheapest item on the menu was a club sandwich for $132. You're joking. So they had to have basically just sweat half their body weight off and walk to the shop down the road <laughs> every day. The most unglamorous possible thing. Heading for glamour, let's get this hotel as amazing, and it ended up being completely different. And that is, that is market forces of a difference. It's not because yeah. it's based on their need, it's based no. on the fact that and you surround it with all this glamour. And it's fascism. not based on the intrinsic value of the contents of the club sandwich. Well, and I'm it's the sure same. it was excellent. And it's the same in football. So there is, each player has an intrinsic actual value, or something close, an estimated actual value. But then and there is a market value which is based on how many players there are in, available in his position, his you know the, how much money that his his current club has, all this, how much the team that's buying him needs him, all this other stuff, which means that you get these huge sort of oscillations between intrinsic and intuitive value uh, that make the market so kind of random. And obviously, the fact that they this prices keep spiralling is because there is more and more money seeping into the game from mainly from TV rights. People can afford it so you can jack up the price because yeah. you know that there's a there's a there's an oasis of money there. But also if you look at the turnover of the clubs, so the turnover of when Man United spent ninety million on Podber, that wouldn't have been as much money in relation to their turnover as when Buffon went to Juventus for thirty two million yeah. in nineteen ninety nine or two thousand. Which was that was, I think. that was half of Juventus's turnover. They spent fifty percent of the club's value on or one the, player, on the, keeper, on, the yeah. on the keeper. United didn't do that with Podber because United's turnover is five hundred and thirty-five million. Podber's ninety million. That's in in relation to kind of signings for 10, 15 million five years ago. It's probably the same. Well, we we drew the comparison with you know house selling a little earlier, and I suppose the, the more money that it's like, like if somebody says, "Well, oh, our house has gone up a hundred thousand pounds in value," isn't that brilliant? Well, it's not. 
it doesn't mean anything. It's not real money because the house that you would potentially move to has mm. gone up exactly. by the same sort of value as well. So unless you're going to sell your house, you know, live on the street and just spend the money that, you know, that, that extra £100,000 that your house is now worth, then it, it's not real money. And, I, and the same thing has happened in football with the broadcasting deals becoming increasingly more valuable. Clubs aren't thinking... Well, last season we earned 50 million quid from playing in the Premier League and next season we're going to earn 100 million quid from playing in the Premier League. What can we do with that extra 50 million? How can we inject that into the club, you know, improve our stadium or, you know, Mm. increase the scope of our academy? Reduce ticket prices. Reduce ticket prices. Instead, they're just, well, that's just extra money to spend on players. Not better players, not different players. It's just the player that we would have signed for 20 million last season, we will now sign for 40 million because we've got twice as much TV money. Yeah. That's why the, the quality, the overall quality of play isn't going to go up because they've got more money. It's not like Swansea can now go and sign Sergio Busquets. They they will go and sign the same sorts of players they used to be able to. They just spend pay, more money. Have to spend more money but, on them. But, but, but there is a different. There's, there's a slight difference with the house the housing market, which is important. If I was to sell my house, even with this new kitchen, to either well, you've added you've added value to it straight and, away. And the beautiful songbird that we can hear in the background as well. It's just lovely. I don't know if we have added enough value to it to get our money back. I've got to admit. Um, but the so if I was to sell it to you two. And I'm not living with him. <laughs> not you two together. So We're friends, say, but say I'm there not were, living under the same roof. There were three people in the bidding for this house. One is Steve Wyeth, one is Hugh Ferris-Kumar, and number three is Sir Philip Green, noted billionaire, right? <laughs> now, the way things are with house buying, you don't know anything about how wealthy your potential buyers are, so you there is an asking price, and it's whoever gets closest to or furthest beyond the asking price who gets the house. In football, that's not the same, because they know exactly how rich the people are bidding for players. So there is a an, an elasticity of price. Yeah. So if you find out that Mansfield and Manchester United City. Are, are in both wanting to sign your players, you will charge one of your players, you will charge Manchester United more than you charge Mansfield. Equally, if Manchester United are trying to sign a player from Mansfield or from Manchester City, they will offer Mansfield less money because the money means more to Mansfield. So we talk, people always say, oh, you know, it's, football's lost its mind and... so I do a voice for that one? Probably not. <laughs> uh, football's lost its mind and, you know, no one no, no one's got any concept of value. But the concept of value in football is fluid because money means different things in different contexts. So there is no such thing as, fo- as value in football. It doesn't... You can't put... It's not like a sandwich costs three quid. A player costs what a player costs, depending on huge numbers of factors. Uh, but, it, but it also is affected by the fact that there's no jeopardy. If you've got something of value that you need to sell because you need the money, if you don't sell them, you're scuppered. Very rarely is that a situation. So that it's not particularly high stakes in that regard. Mm. You're not saying... Juventus aren't saying to themselves, if we don't... We've got to keep pushing it because we need the 90 million. And and if we don't get 90 million and we don't sell him, those are those are two possible options. They knew they were going to sell him. Mm. They knew Manchester United would continue to up the price. And so they're in a very, very comfortable negotiating position. The other thing we should talk about is none of these things are certain. So you can have a player who has had an astonishing season for one club in one league. And there is you see it kind of increasingly, and we don't, I don't want to get back into how things are covered, but, you know, such and such is a good signing for such and such because nobody knows. Yeah. There is no way... And that plays into your timing argument. Well, it's, it's, it's as much of a risk either way. You pay more for the prime yeah. and they might have 
a downward trajectory or you pay less for somebody who hasn't realised their potential that they may never realise. I mean, I, I increasingly believe that clubs would much rather spend 50 million quid on a player that they believe is more or less a dead cert to be a success than to buy five potentially good players for 10 million a piece and maybe get lucky with two or three of mm. those. And also, by paying big fees for players... I think the clubs are effectively putting the pressure on the player rather than themselves and their own judgment that if you sign a player for 50 million quid and it doesn't work out, the, the fans, the media, would consider that to be the player's fault for failing to live up to their price tag. Whereas if they go out and, and buy a relatively unheard player for 5 to 10 million and that that doesn't pay off, that that is a reflection on the club's inability to scout the player correctly that there was no great expectation on the player in the first instance and the fact they didn't pan out is is the club's poor judgment rather than if you spend 50 million quid on the player then it's their fault if they don't slot into the team we've talked before haven't we about having our own expectations of our own team's players in that we almost prefer our teams to pay less Mm. on a player because there's more chance that it will be a happy surprise Mm. as opposed to the risk that comes with paying all that money and actually not necessarily having the same amount of emotional contact with that player because they will only be as expected Mm. they will not be the find the validation of our club scouting system System, the the bargain that we spotted and nobody else did. But even even with dead certs, there's no such thing as a dead cert. So you've done a lot of Serie A. Mohamed Salah is has been fantastic for Roma, yep. without a shadow of a doubt. For, if you forget about whether he's worth the price, as we've established, there's no such thing as value. But Salah looks yeah. a reasonably good shot. But you have no way of telling because he. Someone I saw something about Salah. This is what triggered the thought a few days ago. Saying, oh, you know, why Mohamed Salah will be the signing of the summer for, for Liverpool. But what, what if he gets injured early on? What if Jürgen Klopp gets sacked? What if Jürgen Klopp leaves? What if his wife doesn't settle? What if he hates Liverpool? What if he, if he isn't using the right system? What if Liverpool's system doesn't work? What if he, you know, what if he doesn't quite gel with Coutinho and Mane? And Firmino, like, that can happen. You can have excellent players who just don't quite work together. There is no way of telling everything in the transfer market is a gamble, even when it looks like it's not a gamble. And the other thing that Steve wanted to mention, I know, was about scouting. We, we spoke last week about the depth of clubs' knowledge of players all over Europe. But to the untrained eye, it almost seems now that a lot of big clubs, and Liverpool are one that you feel is the most guilty of this, aren't scouting players for five to ten million, that they are just waiting and in three or four years' time spend four or five times as much money on the same player because by that point they're absolutely convinced that that's going to work. So either they're not scouting or they don't trust what the, the, the they don't trust their scouting enough to invest well, in potential rather than the finish buying the finished product. They don't trust the player in the Premier League, so they wait for a mm. Premier League club to buy him as a bargain because they've got a good yeah. scouting system, and then buy them from that Premier League yeah, club. Yeah. So Liverpool will wait for Southampton to buy them, and then yeah, the Southampton buffer zone yeah. is basically yeah. what it is. I think I think all all big clubs scout. They will all have huge huge armies of scouts, both real life and data. Um, but th- and th- there is a market function, so you have to have someone at the top of the market. The clubs I've always admired the most in Europe are teams like Lyon and th- with sort of an asterisk for slight dodginess, Porto and Udinese, the teams that buy really well, buy really cleverly, and mm-hmm. then sell on. I think, and it's always baffled me that more Premier League teams don't try to do that. I think that's largely a function of the market. That if you've got more money than everybody else, you kind of naturally drift towards the top of the market. So you will look at all of the leads as w- why would we go and spend. 2 million 
on a an unheralded prospect from Serbia when we could go to Italy and spend 10 million on someone who's had two years in Serie A or three years in Serie A or we could spend 20 million on a Premier League player when all those sums of money are entirely attainable so there is a natural market mm. function but I do think clubs in the Premier League and the big clubs in Europe are increasingly too averse to risk and this is something we have talked about before but that's because they're not given any chance. There is no such thing as development anymore. At the very top of the Premier League, there is no, there's no time, there's no space. Every defeat is a crisis, and every draw is a crisis, and every win just staves off a crisis. So you kind of think, well, there isn't the kind of environment that you need to take those risks. And maybe in Italy, lower down the table in Spain, lower down the table in Germany, there is, there is more of an environment where clubs will think, all right, well, we lost this week, but it's not a disaster. Whereas in England... Even even for kind of Stoke finishing ninth, you know, but should Mark Hughes go because Stoke didn't finish eighth? And you think, well, no, he shouldn't. Does it Stoke? What do you expect? But isn't um, there also um, a sense? And we'll finish with this because uh, we must move on. But if you're a, a Premier League club or a big European club, you feel like you have earned the right through success, through money, to swim in these refined waters, and you almost think, well. That's the whole reason for being. We are in a situation that allows us to cherry-pick the very best. Why would we bother doing anything else? Yeah, I think that's it. And I'd like to say, when the money isn't... The only reason you wouldn't cherry-pick the very best is if you don't have the money to do it. So when you've got the money, you don't, that's what you're going to do. And I think the, the problem increasingly in England is that they're not... The, the teams, so many teams have money that they're not cherry-picking the very best. They're just, being, they're just going and saying, we want that player who is kind of unproven, who's had one good season or done this, that and the other. And they're being told, well, you've got to, sorry, but you've got to pay 19 million quid for him. And they're going, all right, that's fine. It's not a problem. We've got 19 million quid. And that means that kind of they are getting the same quality of player as they would have done before, just for far more money. Well, that is our transfer conversation. I hope we have meandered through enough subjects to make you feel like uh, you oh. have picked up something along the way and if there's any value in our market oh, no. yeah there probably isn't with a terrible terrible segue like that uh, normally we'd finish uh, with a tale from Andy Hinchcliffe's playing days that we call a soccer story in his absence though we thought we'd contribute our own work based adventures they can't be about playing football we know Rory's Sunday League team would rather play with 10 than pick him alright come on that story has been told instead we will recount fables from our lives in journalism just as glamorous I'm sure Sheffield Wednesday in 1999 uh, stand by for the first and most likely last media memoirs will it have oh, the same no. oh, hashtag value as hashtag soccer story um, media memoirs then I have to alliterate um, who would like to go first and let's make these brief if we can please Rory, you, you, again, you, you, kick, you kick things off uh, alright uh I occasionally as a journalist you have to criticise a player's performance and suggest that that they have not lived up to their expectation whilst working for the Telegraph and covering Merseyside I happened to write quite scathingly about a, uh, a Liverpool player and on the Monday morning after the piece had been published uh, received a phone call from a number I did not know and it was said player's dad uh, saying in a month I can't do the swearing but saying that I had been deeply unfair on his <laughs> offspring and that he, he disagreed wholeheartedly with my assessment uh, and that he was going to commit a violent act upon me and that the only thing that was saving me from this almost certainly fatal violent act was that I was in London, to which I said, I'm not in London. I don't know why I pointed that out. <laughs> and he said, what? And I went, yeah, I'm in Manchester. I'm only down the road. And he went, 
Oh, well, if you weren't in Manchester, then I'd come. <laughs> and I said, well, it's not far. I can I'm meet in, you in Warrington. I'm in Liverpool a couple of times a week. And he was like, and he, Anyway, so he um, yeah, threatened to shoot me, in fact. Uh, and I then gave away my location. He did not shoot me, but by the end, it went on for about 10 minutes, this phone call, that, in which he threatened to shoot me. And then at the end... I, I sort of explained what I meant and said, you know, you did the thing, the slightly cowardly thing, where you sort of say, well, actually, maybe I was a bit harsh. I didn't really mean, you didn't really mean to say that. and Or, you know, you're reading it a bit more inten- intensely. The subs changed it. No, I, didn't, I, I would never do that. But I kind of said, well, look, you, you may be reading it a little bit sensitively. And at the end, he was like, all right, well, you know, I've said my piece now. So have a great week and I'll speak to you soon. <laughs> <laughs> he really put the phone down. He was really cheery at the end. He's been very nice to me, very nice to me since, but he did. Uh, now that he's is, got your number. <laughs> that is the only time I have been threatened to be killed by a player's oh, I've been threatened so many times, it's not worth telling. Steve? Uh, one from very recently, the, the, the pitfalls of, of live broadcasting that I, uh, I stumbled into very recently whilst working at the BBC, um, doing the sports news on the television. It was whilst you were away, Hugh, so... Uh, Thankfully, you missed it. And uh, I was Rory is shocked in, either I'm that so you were shocked. on the television or I was away. Steve on TV. <laughs> I was stood in front of the, ca- of the camera ready to, ready to perform with my scripts and my first story on the auto cue. And I, was, I, was, I couldn't hear anything. I said, well, I couldn't hear anything coming from the gallery. Couldn't hear the director or the producer speaking to me, and I was communicating. Can you can you try and sort this out? I was fiddling with my with my with the with the sound equipment that was uh, attached to my belt, so I was sort of leaning around the back, and suddenly I just hear a panicked voice go, "You're on, you're on!" So quickly had to look down the camera, compose myself, and deliver the first story. And I thought that was all very. Yeah, I, I couldn't hear anything. No one had warned me. This was all very odd. I was like, "What happened there?" Came. Off. Oh, God, I hope that wasn't didn't look too too embarrassing. Didn't look too terrible, and unfortunately, you can find out pretty quickly how bad it looks. And the presenter in London, who I couldn't hear and therefore had missed my cue, had just come off the back of a story about Donald Trump's uh, latest misadventures on Twitter, and you know where they'd been discussing apparently like his use of language or his limited use of language. And Tim Wilcox, the uh, the excellent uh, presenter on BBC World, had said. One man who has absolutely no problem with their vocabulary is uh, Stephen Wyeth, who's at the BBC Sports Centre for us. And it's just me stood on the screen going, what? I can't hear anything. (laughs) Staring gormlessly into space. (laughs) Oh, yes. I like that. I I get the impression that's one of many. Uh, I hasten to add it was not my fault but I did look (laughs) like an idiot it's never it's the presenter always gets blamed and only one time in about 20 times is it the presenter's fault presenter's union stay strong Uh, my story is very brief um, I used to interview Sir Alex Ferguson um, very regularly, um, one-on-one, which was a rare treat mm-hmm. um, for, for, for me, not for him. Um, and he would uh, always, on a Friday morning, when I would uh, speak to him pre-match, he would go into the MUTV studio at the training ground at Carrington, and then he would um, speak to MUTV, and then he would come through to a little kind of holding area uh, where I would be standing waiting, usually sweating buckets, um, nervous about what kind of mood mm. he would be in. And it would, any number of moods, and you'd usually be able to gauge his mood after a question or two, and you would then kind of continue accordingly, depending on how uh, brave you thought you were going to be. On that case, though, he was holding his phone, and you, you, you always see players, managers with phones, but he was actually holding it out. And I, he actually said, um, I'm going to have to stop this interview because there's 
a race going on and <laughs> one of my horses is in the race so there's me really really nervous about as I was every time with Alex Ferguson because he was a barrel of laughs and you just weren't sure how amusing he was going to be and he, he cut me off and he said stop and then he listened down his phone I'm assuming that somebody was playing radio commentary of the race mm. down his phone our time was always limited I'm like thinking getting a little bit angsty this is a bit awkward and uh, he's listening down the phone so that you can hear the kind of the, the horse race commentary coming through the phone. He's turned away from me. Terrible body language, Alex. I mean, come on, I'm standing there. Impolite. He gets to the end of the um, the race, slams his phone shut, and then he looks at me and he goes, come on, hurry up. Have <laughs> 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 all day. I got one more question off and then he walked off. And it was, I was very close to being subordinate and saying, well, so Alex, actually, the time was used mostly with you listening to a horse that you owned not win a race. Did it not win? Uh, and that might have been why, the, why no. he wanted to, to, to get off sharpish. But just an example of the uh, roller coaster ride that was talking to Sir Alex Ferguson. Funnily enough, if we had the whole podcast, I could do you several more, just like we could talk about Steve yeah, messing I'm, up on airloads. I've got a couple of Fergie <laughs> ones as well, actually. Uh, we'll do a special one. Th- that's to come. Let's have a Fergie special. When, when there really is nothing to talk about yeah. at some point. Um, thank you very much, indeed for p- persisting with us as we um, were again, again self-indulgent. We are a little self-indulgent on Set Piece Menu. Um, thank you. Um, Andy Hinchcliffe will return soon. Please do not worry about him. Uh, in the meantime, though, whilst you're not worrying about him, if you could subscribe, share, rate and review as we humbly ask you to continue to find room for us in your podcast schedule. Please do continue to get in touch via at Set Piece Menu or setpiecemenu at gmail.com. We thank you for all your correspondence. We also thank Steve and Rory as well and to you for listening. We will be back with another Set Piece Menu for you to enjoy very soon indeed. Next time I offer to bring food along to a Set Piece Menu recording... I need to have a definitive response. You want, about you it. want validation. If I say, guys, would you like me to bring food? I think it's probably my turn. I need the response. I need the response. I don't. I don't enjoy spending time in the kitchen to the extent where I am simply just going to prepare a meal for people who are not then going to consume it. Well, well it I think you know as well enough to know we we would have consumed. Yes, yeah, so if there's food, we're going to consume, it. and it's one of the reasons why I have to rush now because in order to get to work with the extra need to have lunch between mm, mm. this moment and work I'm clearly going to have to go because I'm very hungry we haven't yeah, eaten clearly. there was an offer of food I left my belly empty yeah. and and unfortunately it remains now almost collapsing in on itself Yeah. so if you collapse uh, in front of the camera through sheer exhaustion from lack of nourishment you're going to blame that on me later is that what's I will do it will be my, my dying words I will essentially out you as the, yeah. as the person who's <laughs> not been able to sustain me through the afternoon.